0: We've looked at this verse now in part. We looked at the first half, and it's time for us to look at the second half now. And we will spend the entire morning doing that, uh, the entire morning meaning the next 40 to 45 minutes or so. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The training of children... It's an extremely important issue to the heart of God. We believe that the only thing God is doing in the world is building his church. And everything else serves merely as props behind Christ, who at center stage is working out his magnificent plan for the ages. He told Peter, I will build my church, and not even the gates of Hades, that is death, not even death has the power to overcome it. And how will Christ build his church? Well, he will build it by the miraculous power of the gospel. Now, this much we know and understand fully by now, but I wonder if we realize and fully appreciate the primary means by which God intends for the gospel to be spread. Frankly, I don't believe that God's primary means of spreading the gospel is through the work of professional evangelists. Nor do I think God's primary instruments are missionaries who take the gospel to the ends of the earth, or preachers, like me, who proclaim the gospel in their local congregations. No, the people who are the primary tools by which the gospel is successfully conveyed to the lost are, get this, Faithful parents, faithful parents who devote themselves to bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Mom and dad, you, not Billy Graham, you, not Pastor Dan. It is you who are the primary tools in God's hand to build the church of Jesus Christ. I don't think we fully appreciate that. And maybe you've never even heard that before. The primary role of evangelists and missionaries and preachers, and they do have a role, they have a fantastic role. But their primary role is to make disciples, I think, of parents and future parents around the world who will in turn lead their little ones to put their confidence in God parents then become the primary evangelists. They become the primary co-laborers with Christ in his primary objective of building his church. And so parenting is no small issue in the heart of God. It is a huge issue. Because I think when we get to heaven... we're going to start counting heads and hearing testimonies and find out that the vast majority of people who were there are there because their mom and their dad told them about Jesus. And that's as it should be. And all of this, I think, is the reason why Ephesians 6, 4, Paul speaks directly to Christian parents. Because in doing so, he gives them two commands. The first is negative. Do not exasperate your children. In other words... Be careful to guard your own hearts, parents, against any attitude and any action that might tempt your children to become embittered against you and lose heart. Because if they become embittered against you, it is likely that they will also become embittered against Christ, whom you claim to serve. And so guard your heart, parents. Guard your hearts. And so the negative command is, do not exasperate your children. But Paul gives a positive command as well. The second half of verse 4 reads, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, the negative command is extremely important for parents. But this positive command should be of equal concern because it lays out for us the purpose and the goal of the whole parenting enterprise. First, he tells us, don't do this. Don't exasperate your children. Why? Because you are going to sabotage the work of God if you do that. Okay, Paul, tell me what the work of God is. Okay? Exhortation number two, in a positive sense, bring your children up as faithful disciples of the Lord. In other words, the primary goal of Christian parenting is to pass on our faith to the next generation. To successfully pass the gospel on to the next generation. But it's not just a goal. It's not just a goal for us as parents. It is also a gift from us parents. As Christian parents, we need to understand that the most important, listen, the most important and the most precious gift that you can give your children is an unshakable confidence in the promises of God. You cannot save them. You don't have the power to save them. Only God has the power to save, and He always saves through the proclamation of the truth. Now, the question that we need to wrestle with is, with parents, is who is going to be the, pro, the primary proclaimers of that truth? Answer: Paul says, you parents. You're the preachers. You're the teachers. You're the ones who are called to explain the gospel to your children notice what Paul says here. The words bring them up are actually a single word in the Greek. And it means to nourish, to feed, to raise, to clothe, to care for. It has all of that connotation. It's the same word used back in Ephesians 5, 28, where Paul wrote and said, He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. What's he mean? Who's responsible for taking care of the bride of Christ? Who's responsible for making sure she's well-fed and that she's healthy and cared for, that she has a roof over her head, so to speak? Christ is. Who's responsible to make sure all of that happens for a human bride? The husband is. And who is responsible for making sure all of that happens in the spiritual realm For children, parents are. You see how it works? And so bring them up literally means to nurture, to care for, to make sure their needs are met. Except here, in a spiritual sense. All of their spiritual needs are met. That's your responsibility, parents. That's our responsibility. To pass on to them the gospel and our faith in it. But what kind of nourishment is God speaking of here. What exactly are parents to feed and clothe their children with? Well, Paul says that we are to nourish them with two things, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you feed your children spiritually? Discipline and instruction. Now, the word discipline, paideia here, is used almost exclusively to refer to the training of children. Training of children with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. You're forming their habits. You explain to them what to do. When you see something they're not supposed to do or say, you correct it. You're giving them behavioral modification. You're teaching them proper uh, behavior and proper character. It involves discipline in a positive sense. Discipline in terms of instruction but it also involves punishment and correction in the negative sense. Paul, Paul says that you are to feed them, what? Nourish them on what? Discipline. But then he used a similar word, instruction. Neuthasia. By the way, uh, the conference coming up over at Birchman uh, is uh, the kind of biblical counseling that calls itself neuthetic counseling. And this is the word from which we get nuthetic. Instruction, Neuthasia. it refers to the ethical and corrective instruction relative to belief and behavior. And practically, the way this works out is you take the Word of God and you teach your children how the Word of God comes to bear on every issue in their lives. And what kind of discipline and instruction is Paul referring to? It is the only kind that one can be legitimately say, is of the Lord. It is discipline and instruction that is of the Lord. In other words, it is a discipline and instruction that is consistent with God's revelation of Christ. It is discipline and instruction that is consistent with the character of Jesus Christ and His will and His plan and His specific plan for the person's life. So pulling it all together, then, we see that the Christian parents' primary responsibility is to nourish our children's souls with the kind of Christ-besotted training and correction that will equip them to live as faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to do. That's what we are called to do. This is God's purpose for every, I say every, Christian parent. The primary goal is not to give our children a fully charged liberal arts education. That's not the primary goal. The primary goal is not to land them a great career so that they can make a lot of money. A lot of money. That is not the primary goal. The primary goal is not to become famous and have the world at your beck and call. Those goals are far too small for the believing parent for his children. They are far too small for Christian parents. Our goal must be to prepare their hearts to embrace the truth that the highest calling in the world upon their lives is to be found, what? Faithful as followers of Christ. If we succeed in everything else and fail on that point, we have failed. We have failed. And come to think of it, this has always been the high calling of parenthood. Now let me throw in a caveat here. Parents, I don't believe, on the final day will be judged by whether or not their children came to faith, whether or not they are saved. I don't think that's going to be the judgment. The judgment is going to be, Mom and Dad, did you fulfill your responsibility in getting the message right for them? Giving it to them so that the Spirit can empower it in their hearts and transform them, to redeem them, to save them. That's going to be the judgment. Were you faithful? Again, you cannot save your children. All you can do is faithfully give them the truth. Were you faithful? Were you faithful? And this has been the message of the whole Bible. Even in the Old Testament times, God's chief concern for parents was that they raised their children to put their confidence in God. And this is what Psalm 78, 1 through 8 is about. I want you to turn back there because we're going to spend the rest of our time in Psalm 78. Paul gives us a half of a sentence... And I thought, you know, maybe we would do well if we had a larger text to kind of flesh this out for us a little bit. Psalm 78 is one. Deuteronomy 6 is another. I don't have time to preach both. But Psalm 78 says this. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ear to my to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which have... ...which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from our children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born... This is a command for future parents yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not what faithful to God. The author of this psalm was a man by the name of Asaph. He was a chief musician to Israel. And Asaph knew that the blessing of the Lord upon his people was contingent upon whether or not the people were faithful to the Lord from the heart. Faithfulness would bring about blessing under the law. Unfaithfulness would bring about all of the promised curses. The only way a nation could collectively become faithful to the Lord was for parents to commit to training their children to live for the Lord. The problem was, of course, that in Israel's long history leading up to the reign of David and the writing of the Psalms, Israel had been terribly unfaithful, terribly unfaithful. In fact, for the most part, this whole psalm is a song of Israel's unfaithfulness. How would you like to have a song written about how unfaithful you were? And so it's a psalm, a song that they actually sang, declaring, reminding themselves of how unfaithful to the Lord they had been and the sufferings that resulted under God's judgment. But understand, Asaph's goal here, is to remind the people that God is gracious, that God is compassionate. He's slow to chide and quick to bless as we sing. He's not embittered against us. He doesn't hold a grudge against us. And the surest path to his abundant blessing is found in being diligent to train our children to be faithful, to follow hard after God. In other words, train them to worship God in spirit and in truth. Train them to worship God with their lives, with mind engaged and with heart aflame for the glory of Christ. With that in mind, it might be profitable to invest the remainder of our time in answering three questions that I think Asaph will answer for us. Question number one, has God provided a curriculum for this kind of child training? Has he provided a curriculum for this kind of child training? Wouldn't that be great? Just get on eBay and order a copy. I mean, eBay's got everything, right? Secondly, has God defined his purpose for such child training? And third, what will happen if we neglect this kind of child training? And so let's begin with verses 1 through 4 of this great psalm. God's curriculum for child training. And this is what we read. Listen, O oh my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parable. In a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. And we will not conceal them from their children, but will tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. Right from the start, we need to understand that the parable, which consists of dark sayings, Asaph said, is nothing more, really, than a cryptic, artistic, Hebraic way of uh, referring to the Word of God. He's just talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the law of God and the testimony. We know that because he describes these dark sayings, this parable, he describes them with these words, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. In verse 5 then, he makes it even more explicit by using these words, testimony, law, and command. Now those are classic terms in the Old Testament that speak to the Word of God. These are technical terms. Whenever you see law, testimony, command, you're talking about the Word of God, the written word of god not only that but it's also a clear reference for how this word was passed down from one generation to another primarily eventually it was written down and copied so at least they had a copy of it in every synagogue it was rare that a home would have a copy of it you had to be extremely wealthy to own your own copy Of the Old Testament scriptures, and so how was it passed down from generation to generation? I mean, between the mid 14, uh, before the mid 1400s, when the printing press was invented, and that's A.D. I mean, this is way, way, way back B.C. How was the Word of God passed down? Answer: It's passed down orally. They just repeated it and repeated it and told it and told it and retold it. They talked about it all the time. Eventually it was written down, but until that time came, it was the responsibility of the parents to pass down divine truth to their children orally. And This is why Moses in the book of Deuteronomy says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. But not just on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's Moses saying? Moses is saying to the parents, there is only one God. And it is your responsibility to love him and to do whatever it takes to teach your children to love him too. Teach them the word and do it with words. They're not going to learn it. If you don't use words, they will not learn the word. And so speak to them. Speak to them the word of God. And so Asaph says in verse 4 of Psalm 78, We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come. We will not conceal the word from our children, but we will tell even to the generation to come. I can't help but think of the way this is structured. It looks like grandparents here. I think it's parents and grandparents, but grandparents, you have a... An amazing responsibility and privilege. Let me just tell you. This isn't in my notes, but I'll just tell you that some of you already know. Do you know why I am in this pulpit? I don't know that I've ever said this before. Do you know why I am in this pulpit today? I had a faithful grandpa. We called him Poppy Kirk. I had a faithful grandfather. And you know what? I didn't live with him. lived with my parents. And my dad taught us that this book was the Word of God. And he made sure we were in church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night of my life. But you know what? Sometimes the parents are so close to their children that they don't quite have the impact that someone who is one step away can have. My grandfather was one step back. And he could reach into my life from across town. He could just show up on our doorstep and walk in. Everybody loved him. He had a tremendous sense of humor. And the most amazing knowledge of the Word of God I think I have ever seen in any man my whole life. In his retirement years, he gave himself to studying the Word of God. And he would do it. At night, he would take these little catnaps so that he could get enough rest but he only would take catnaps so that he could be up and awake and studying the Word of God the rest of the time. And he did that until he had a stroke and he couldn't do it anymore. He was faithful. He came to know the Lord late in life. But you know what? The rest of his life was devoted to being sure that God would use him to restore all the years the locust had eaten. And he was faithful. Every chance he got, he was bringing the Word of God to bear on my life. And sometimes my brother and I didn't like it. We'd be in a scrap, and my grandfather would come along, and he'd start quoting Scripture and loving on us, and we just wanted to get away from him. And we didn't like it. But there are other times we'd sit at his table. Oh, no, we can't eat until we pray. And we can't pray until we quote Psalm 23. Do you know why I know Psalm 23 back and forth? Do you know why last Sunday when we showed up, the ice storm, there wasn't hardly anybody here, and I said, you know what, we want to postpone this message until next week when everybody comes because it's a really important message. What message did I preach? I preached out of Psalm 23. Why? My grandfather put that thing in my heart as a child. Grandparents, this message isn't just for your grown children. It's for you. And you will be either faithful or unfaithful in how you train your grandchildren as you have opportunity. I love the way it's because I it can't be talking, talking to your grandparents. Which Both. Both. Do you have influence over another human being? Use it to the glory of God. Asaph is having people sing here a covenant commitment to God by their children and the commitment is this lord we promise that we will not conceal your word from our children we will not conceal your word in our homes that word conceal in the hebrew means the same thing that it means in english it means to hide We will not hide your word from our children. We won't put it in a dark place. We won't keep it secret from them. We won't be guilty in the end of having introduced them to every godless element of our culture and neglected to give them the word of God. We will not, by your grace, we will not be guilty of that. You see, the starting line for Christian education that sadly most professing Christians never stand upon is this one. This is it. In my experience as a pastor, I have come to believe that most fathers who claim to be Christians and claim to love this book and really do not regularly meet with their families to give them the word of God. They're guilty of concealing it. We're guilty of hiding it, leaving it unread. And I'm here to tell you this morning, men, that this is a failure of the first order. This is not a fringe responsibility. This is your first responsibility toward your wife and to your children. Why is it that we think of family worship as a secondary optional kind of discipline that we might get around to someday when we get a little more spiritual and it gets a little more convenient? Brothers, let me tell you this. If you are too busy to lead your family in worship and in hearing the word of God and praying to the God of their life, you are too busy. It just comes down to that. This is a first-order discipline in our homes. The discipline that the Apostle Paul calls for in Ephesians 6 is the first of all the self-discipline of believing fathers to lead their families to God every day of their lives. Every day of your lives. Sometimes in a formal way, sometimes in an informal way. Sometimes it's at family worship, sometimes it's just while you're riding in the car. Sometimes it's just when you're eating a meal. Sometimes you're just giving thanks to God for for His provision, and you're drawing something uh, that God has done to your children's attention and giving Him glory for it. Sometimes it's when they're waking up. Sometimes it's when you're walking in the way. Sometimes it's when you're going down for bed. Sometimes it's over a meal. Sometimes it's family worship in a more formal sense. Sometimes it's bringing them to church. But in every way, we need to give them the word of God. Now, let me make it practical. If someone were to sit down and ask you, what is the most significant gift that you are laboring to give your children in their formative years? What would your answer be? Now, you can answer this question legitimately or illegitimately. You can say, well, of course, I want to teach them about God. But if you want to give an honest answer to that, Look at your schedule and look at your checkbook. Find out where you spend your time and where you spend your money in regards to your children. And that will give you a little insight as to whether or not this really is the chief priority. What is the priority? Listen, I know a lot of homeschool families. I suspect the primary goal is to give them a good education. That's the wrong goal. Good education needs to be a goal, but it is not the ultimate goal. I know a lot of moms in my days whose primary goal was to teach their daughter certain graces and certain kinds of behavior that would land them a good husband. That's the wrong goal. Or give them a talent that will make them successful and famous. Wrong goal. Too small. Most, most important goal in our agenda as Christian parents should be to nourish our children's souls with the unshakable truth of the Word of God. Now, you may say, well, I don't have a theological education, so I don't feel adequate to teach the Bible. That's okay. That's okay. If you don't feel adequate to teach it to them, then just sit down and read it to them. Let God speak for himself. His Word, listen, never returns to him void. But always accomplishes everything for which he sent it. Like rain produces growing plants. So the word of God produces life in our children. It's not anemic. It's not powerless. It really doesn't need as much help as we think it needs. Someone said the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You just need to open up the cage and let it out. It'll take care of itself. Read it to them. And when your kids ask you questions, answer the best you can. Be honest when you don't know. Get yourself a good study Bible that you can use to prepare before you're reading. Or if you don't have time to prepare before you're reading, read it. And if someone asks a question, say, well, let me look at the note here and see if this is helpful. You'll find that by teaching the word of God to your family, you will learn it better than you ever thought you could. So don't let ignorance get in the way. Don't let a sense of inferiority or a sense that that you're not adequate in this area get in the way. Just do it. A.W. Pink once wrote, gifts and talents are developed by use, not by neglect. Work at it. Develop it. Hang out with other men who know the Word of God better than you and ask them questions. Tell you what, with our family last night, we we hit Matthew chapter 24. It was just the next chapter. Matthew 24 is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, and we ate it up. It was wonderful. The kids had a thousand questions. Well, not a thousand, but they had several good questions about that text. And I had, I had to be honest with them. You know, there's some disagreement over an understanding of this text. But here are the important things to keep in mind. Here are the important things that the text clearly says. You don't have to have a theological education. In fact, some theological educations will do more harm than good. But there's more to be said here because it is possible to work hard at reading the Word and even having your children memorize the Word, but somehow it never makes it to their heart. And so we need to ask Asaph, what is it from the word of God that we should focus on? What should be our focus? Thankfully, Asaph answers that question in the next phrase. In verse 4, he writes, We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come, here here we go, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. We see here that there are three things that we should focus on in teaching our children. Three points in the divine curriculum for child training. Number one, the praises of the Lord. Number two, his strength. Number three, his wondrous works. Why these things? Because you are ultimately teaching them. Trust God. Put your confidence in Him. Love Him. Everything else will fall into place if your confidence is in His Word and you love Him. And so teach them these three things. What are they? Number one, the praises of the Lord. In other words, teach them the things for which God is worthy of praise. Why is God worthy of praise? And by the way, I love that he calls calls us to teach these three things. You know why? Because you don't need a theological education to point these three things out to your children. Teach them the things for which God is worthy to be praised. In other words, teach them about the glorious and infinite attributes of God. Teach them about his immensity. Explain to them with every opportunity how big God is. And when you look into the sky and you're talking about the stars and all the space that's between them and around them and the fact that the universe is so big, some people think it goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, tell them God is bigger still. God said in the book of Jeremiah, Do I not fill heaven and earth? Show them the praises of the Lord by teaching them about God's Immense and infinite love. Explain to them that his love for his people, even when they sin against him, is so unimaginably overwhelming that human words are inadequate to describe his love. Teach them his love. Show them the praises of the Lord by teaching them about God's infinite grace and his infinite mercy. Share with them your testimony of how God was infinitely merciful to you, eternally merciful to you. And teach them about His omniscience, His omnipresence, His humility, His condescension. In a thousand ways, teach them that God is worthy of their joyful and awe-struck adoration. Teach them the praises of the Lord. Secondly, teach them about His strength. Teach them about His strength. Remind them again and again that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. And how many times I've prayed that for myself and for my family. You get into a tight spot. You get into a big conflict. You get into a disastrous situation. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? One of the first that comes to my mind is this. The word of the Lord is a strong tower. I need to run to it now. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. I need to run to Him now. Teach them that He is a mighty fortress. Teach them that the Creator of heaven and earth is their keeper and their protector. Show them that it's safe to take risks for God, to give their lives away to the service of God, either here or among the nations where His fame is yet to be set on display. Teach them the power of God. And by the way, beloved, oh, how the church needs young men and women who will rise up in fearless devotion and lay their lives out for God, believing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. They won't do it unless they are convinced, as Paul was, that he is able to keep whatever I have committed to him against that day. And who teaches them that? Who teaches them that? Mom and Dad? You do. It's your job. I'm here to help. But it's not primarily, your children are not primarily my responsibility. They're yours. So teach them his strength. Third, teach them his wondrous works. Speak to to them about how the Lord has answered your prayers and done far more abundantly beyond all that you could have asked for. When God answers a prayer, bring them in on it. In fact, set them up. Take on some challenge together. Something that you know is according to the will of God. And say, God, we want to do this for your glory. We know it will please you because we see it in the word of God. And so, Lord, we don't know where the resources are coming from. But we want to do this for someone or something. And would you enable us to do it? Show us the need and then give us the ability to meet that need. And begin praying about it with your faith. And watch them, watch God answer your prayer. He's promised to do it. Teach them about his wondrous works. Israel, Israel was to remind their children often about how God had miraculously rescued them from Egypt, how he parted the Red Sea and provided water from a rock and bread from heaven. Teach them that the old biblical stories of his wondrous works. And then show them that God is still in the business of answering prayer with power from on high. Teach them his wondrous works. Now, drawing these three things together, we can summarize by saying the ultimate curriculum for child training is the word of God and every experience used to magnify the supremacy of God in all things. Beloved, we need to realize that raising obedient children, listen, Raising obedient children is not the ultimate goal. It is a means to that end. It is not the end. It is very possible that you could raise obedient children who go to hell when they die. Raising well-educated children is not the goal. You can raise intelligent, scholarship-winning kids who will live in comfortable Homes and have great jobs and raise their own families and grow old and then die and spend eternity in hell. But they were well educated. The ultimate goal is to so train our children that they will see and delight in and embrace the awesome glory of God in the face of Christ so that he becomes their deepest joy, their strongest hope their highest ambition. They would say with Paul that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I just want to know him. This is God's curriculum for child training. But what about his purpose? Has God defined his objective for this kind of child training? He has. Look at verses 5 through 7. Why should the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works be our curriculum in child training? Why should this be the central focus of our instruction? The answer is revealed in verses 5 through 7. He writes this. That the generation to come might know, even children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children... That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. The key phrase is, the key phrase here is that they should put their confidence in God. It is not that they might know all theology, it is not that they may know every technical view of God eschatology, that they could explain every minute difference between uh, pre-millennial, pre-tribulational dispensationalism and all of the intricacies of preterism and amillennialism as it compares to historic premillennialism And what in the world are you talking about? And you know what? You can teach your kids all those things, and they could go to hell because you haven't taught them the main thing. That they should put their confidence in God. This is the ultimate purpose and goal of raising children in the Lord, but it's also extremely contrary to our culture. Even our modern American Christian culture. Almost every form of mass media today is geared solely for the purpose of getting us to put our confidence in something else. Getting us to put our confidence in ourselves or in some political party or money or education or some comfort or some pleasure. Put your confidence in that. Put it over here. Put it anywhere you want. But just keep God out of the picture. Keep the main thing out of the center. You see, all of these things are held out to our children as gods who are worthy of their confidence. Trust in your career, son. Trust in what I've taught you on how to make money or how to get a good wife or husband, daughter. Put your confidence in your family name. It'll get you far. Put your confidence in your talent. You see, all of these things are held out as little gods. And the question we need to ask is what are they going to trust to make and keep their lives? What are they going to trust to make this life meaningful, joyful, and good? Will it be God or any number of a million other choices? In what will our children place their confidence As Christian parents, our primary responsibility is to burn within their hearts the hearts of our children and our grandchildren while we are teaching them obedience and math and spelling and literature, teaching them the only correct answer to all of these important questions... Because if they miss it here, if they end up making something else supreme in their lives, if they put their confidence ultimately in something else, they miss everything and for eternity. And that's why this psalm was written. Frankly, it is a history, if you were to read the whole psalm, it is a history of how Israel missed out on life because they put their confidence in everything except the God who made them. And that's the ultimate danger of our neglect as well, and we see that in verse 8. Number 3, the danger of neglect, verse 8. And not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The outcome of their misplaced confidence was that they inherited all of the curses that God promised would be poured out on them if they exchanged God for those other things. If they exchanged God for their idols. The word prepare here, prepare its hearts. The word prepare here means to put right. They didn't put their hearts right. These were religious people to the extreme. We know all about Israel's religion. I mean, we can't even, even those of us who have been to seminary don't fully grasp everything that was involved in this ritualistic uh, theocracy. It was complicated. They were religious to the extreme. But they did not fix their hearts on the awesome and beautiful and majestic supremacy of God. And so most of them lost everything. And only a remnant was preserved. Against the temptation to neglect your duty before God in this regard, there is a sobering verse in Jeremiah chapter 10 that I discovered this week. And it reads this, Pour out your wrath on the nations, O God. That do not know you, and on the families that do not call your name. Prayerless families are here coupled with unbelieving enemies of God that do not know the Lord. Arthur Pink once wrote It is not enough that we pray as private individuals in our closets. We are required to honor God and our families as well. Each day, the whole household should be gathered together to bow before the Lord, parents and children, master and servant, to confess their sins, to give thanks for God's mercies, to seek His help and blessing. Nothing must be allowed to interfere with this duty. All other domestic arrangements are to bend to it. If we would enjoy the blessing of God upon our family, then let it then let its members gather daily for praise and for prayer, that they may honor me. All they that honor me, I will honor. Is the response. You see, the ultimate danger of neglect on our parts, parents, is that we will raise up good, good, well-educated, hard-working. American kids who get good jobs and buy nice houses and move to the country, but who end up absolutely poverty-stricken in the things that really matter because we didn't do the first thing. Beloved, it all comes down to this question. Are we serious about passing in the gospel to the next generation? Are we really devoted to teaching our children to place their confidence in God You'll say, Pastor Dan, how do I do it? What can I do to direct my family in this way? Well, let me offer a few suggestions. Practical counsel on child training. You ready? Just a few very basic things. It's going to have to be fast, so right quick. Actually, you won't have to, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Number one, teach by example. Teach by example. Make learning and obeying the Word of God the most important focus in your life, Dad, in your life, Mom. Before you start insisting that your children have their own quiet time in the morning, that they're spending time with God alone, give them the opportunity to see and hear you pouring out your heart to God. Oftentimes, if I get up in the morning, as I try to do every morning, early to spend time with God in quiet, I have to do it before everybody gets up. But you know what? If my kids don't see me praying and see me pouring over Scripture at home, I want there to be evidence that I was there. A lot of times, I just leave my Bible out and whatever tools I'm using to help me, my highlighters. I got I got a whole thing set up, you know, next to my uh, next to a little end table. I want them to wake up and say, "Yep, there's the Bible. Dad's been up. I wonder where he is." It's obviously been in the Word. I want them to see that there's evidence. I'm not just saying get up and have your quiet time. I'm doing it. And I'm doing it earlier than you are. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo, right? I can hear Maddie and Mikey saying, yeah. Dad. And So teach by example. Second, take advantage of teachable moments. Start looking for and making opportunities to help your children come to see how awesome and wonderful God is. The first item in our... Family's list of core values is this, to delight in the glory of God on display in the Bible and in creation. To delight in the glory of God on display in his word and in his world. And that's what we want. We want to discipline ourselves to take advantage of every opportunity to glory in all of these things with our children so that they will learn to put their confidence in God. Third, establish a consistent time for family worship. Obey the command of Deuteronomy 6. Talk about the glory of God and his word when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And the best way I have found to do this as a family is to establish a consistent time of family worship in your home while your children are young. When I was a kid, preachers used to call this family altar. The Puritans sometimes called it domestic piety. Well, we ought to adopt that. How's your domestic piety going? Fine, how's yours? (sighs) In our day, however, family worship by any name is really a foreign concept, even in the church. Though at one time it was thought of as the pillar of both church and society, in our day it is scarcely thought of at all. In the 20th century... And now on the 21st, family worship has been set aside in favor of good things, Sunday school ministry, youth ministry, pastors. But he has laid this responsibility, this privilege, squarely at the feet of Christian parents in general and fathers in particular. Again, at the conclusion of the sixth book of the Old Testament, we read of Joshua declaring, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Back in Genesis, Abraham was commended by God with these words, I know him, the Lord says, that he will command his children and his household after him that they should keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment. In the New Testament, we learn that the reason that young Timothy was so well prepared to be Paul's right-hand man was because of his faithful mother and faithful grandmother, and many believe that his father was likely an unbeliever. We're convinced he was Greek and maybe a Greek unbeliever. But Paul says of Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.5, For I am convinced of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it now dwells in you also. You see the generational faithfulness? Are you being faithful? Again, I know of no better tool for assisting parents in the difficult duty of raising their children for the Lord than to practice daily engaging in the discipline of family worship. On the one hand, the neglect of family worship causes great harm. It has in the church and in our culture. Again, Arthur Pink writes, How much of the dreadful and moral and spiritual conditions of the masses today may be traced back to the neglect of their fathers to this duty? How can those who neglect the worship of God in the families look for peace and comfort therein? Daily prayer in the home is a blessed means of grace for allaying those unhappy passions to which our common nature is subject. In other words, you don't have peace in your home? Ask yourself, why should there be peace if you're not leading them to the prince of peace every day through his word? Parents, what will you do to ensure that your children are brought up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord? You say, well, I'm homeschooling. Well, you know as well as I do that homeschooling does not necessarily turn their hearts to God. What are you doing How will you seek to ensure that your children know the joy of walking with the Lord for their entire lives after they leave your home? What will you do? What are you doing? That's an important question, I believe, because I also believe the most important and precious gift that a father can give his children is an unmistakable confidence in the promises of God. Are they learning that from you? Are they learning it from you? Well, before you leave this morning, I I trust that you will pick up a copy of this. We've produced this for you this week. I have not preached this whole sermon. I preached everything that I could. The rest of it is in here, this sermon in its entirety. And a bunch of good counsel for how you can establish a time of family worship in your home. How does it work? How will you do it? Can it be simple? How long should it take? Who should lead it? All of those questions are answered here. It's no charge. We've only made about 40 copies. They're on the back table. And one per family, if you don't mind. And grab one on your way out and use it. Start using it in your family. If you don't do this, do something. But train them in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Amen.